certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. In the midst of a global crisis, the Claremont serial killings trial continued today. With Justice Hall telling those in court, we will all pull together. Welcome to day 61 of Claremont in Conversation. We hope you are keeping well wherever you're listening from. It's Natalie Bongiolo, Tim Clark and Alison Fan joining you today. Hi team. Uh, unprecedented times again in WA Supreme Court. Absolutely. Well, our trial of the century is determined to keep fighting on despite all the odds. And we even had the judge bringing in his own sanitizer today because he said supplies were dwindling in the courtroom and he's determined that the trial business is usual. And how many people are in the courtroom at the moment? Well, they have been sticking quite well. The public aren't there. There's um, Bradley Edwards' parents have been coming in. He's there, of course. And I noticed the prosecution team's cut right back to, uh, I suppose, what they feel is necessary. We're all trying to stay a a metre and a half apart. They've um, got an extra room where we can listen to it remotely. And I think uh, they're trying to do their best. They're just really... I think the judge's idea is... Something is better than nothing, even if he has to cut it back to a couple of days to adhere to these ever-increasing restrictions from the virus. Um, He's just hoping that it will continue fighting on. So that's what we're up today. And they're cramming the witnesses in, trying to get them all in at once. Um, And we heard the three forensic guys today. Over to you, Tim. (laughs) (laughs) So is is this basically, Tim, this is in an effort to limit the court days? Well, yeah, Nat. I mean, they're trying to turn a positive into a negative or a negative into a positive, really, because the there was a lot of concessions made over the weekend by Mr. Jovic in terms of the fibre evidence. Now, we haven't seen the written form of these concessions yet, so we don't exactly know what they are. But the upshot of it was that the, the, the live witnesses that were needed were pared down significantly from, as I mentioned last night, from about 10 weeks down to five. But what's that? what that's meant is that there's been a lot of reshuffling, a lot of rejigging and concertinering is the word that they've used of the um, witnesses. So they're all being crammed together. And so this, this was discussed again in court today about how the trial might look going forward. And Justice Hall was very practical in saying, well, look, if we, if we need to, I would rather get all the witnesses to sit in a two or a three-day block and then have the rest of the week off Mm. to limit the amount of days we actually all need to be sat together in court for obvious reasons. Now, ordinarily, a judge would frown upon that because court time is expensive time um, and... But this trial, as we've said so many times, is unique. And now the situation surrounding the trial is unique as well. So Justice Hall, the practical um, jurist that he is, said, let's do it that way. You, If you need to de- take a day off to juggle all your witnesses so we can get them all here over one or two days, and then we can all go away and, and, and uh, you know, hunker down, then that's what we'll do. Um, and we'll, we'll do that for the right reasons, not because we're wasting all each other's time so um that that's the way that the court is going to stream itself i think 
going forward, which might mean a, a few gaps in our transition. <laughs> but um, I think everyone will understand why that is the practical and sensible way to go about it. Yeah. I mean, it almost has this sense of camaraderie now within the courtroom. Oh, absolutely. They are cooperating, yes. Yeah. Mm, they're cooperating to, I think, try to try to get it, keep it going. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because I, 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 we've mentioned this before, there's the there's the the legend of prosecutor versus defence, and you know people yelling objection to each other, and and you know face offs in the corridor. But in practical terms, that's not what the usual trial is like, and certainly not this one. And when you spend so long in, in each other's company, whether you're working, um, you know, on opposing sides or not, be that lawyers or in, you know, in my our case, media organisations. The camaraderie builds up because you're just you're you're having this shared experience that you'll never um, share again, probably with any, anyone else. And so, and, and it, we're not privy to what the conversations between Mr. Jovic and Ms. Barbara Gallo were over the weekend, but they've obviously come to some sort of. Um, common ground in terms of what needs to be done to get it done um, and it would appear that that means that the trial process is sped up and and, and certainly um, hopefully the, the whole process will be will be sped up so we can reach a conclusion of the trial and then hand it all over to Justice Hall for him to do his job. Yeah, I mean I guess the reality is right now on this planet we are all in it together and <laughs> You know, yeah, absolutely. Everyone. And I think the very serious consequences of what's happening around the world has also made them pull together a bit, especially with the overseas witnesses. We were expecting the FBI. We were expecting the experts from the UK. Of course, that's totally out of the question. And the video um, links are going to be very difficult too with the massive time difference, especially with the, with the Americans. But um, I think this is probably why there's they would rather get it done, you know, as as helpfully as they can rather than not at all. Yeah. All right. Well, so day two of fibre evidence today and today you heard about the search for clues. Now, this was from an exhibit taken from the Karakata rape victim. Yes. So um, there were several actually tranches of evidence that we covered today, Nat, but the first of those, as you quite rightly said, were the shorts um, that were recovered from the Karakata Cemetery after the rape of that young lady in 1995. Um, this was uh, a, well, two, we, we had two forensic police officers today and a forensic scientist, all now retired um, veterans of the force, very experienced in their own fields and, uh, and obviously very um, integral to the macro investigation back in the day. Um, so the first real description of, 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 of what the fibre evidence recovery methods looked like, we got today, and that was to do with, with these shorts. Now, they were, as we say, collected in 1995, but they were only examined in this way in uh, 1996, just basically a, a few weeks after Jane went missing and before Jane was Jane's body was recovered. And uh, yeah, so John Ashworth, he was a former forensic officer. Um, he described how these, uh, general, in general terms, how the uh, uh, exhibits were stored, recovered, labelled, um, 
which basically gave a bit of background. And then we had Bernard Lynch, who was the forensic scientist, a very senior forensic scientist, um, not at Path West this time. This is at the Chem Centre, and we'll be hearing a lot more about the Chem Centre in the coming weeks because that is where the fibre database that we discussed with Brendan is now based, and a lot of the morphological, so the, the more physical, not the, not your DNA stuff, everything else happened and and. And was underwent at the uh, at the chem centre, and so this is where Mr. Lynch was tasked with doing the tape lifts on these shorts, um, and we got a very in-depth description of how that worked, um, and the results of it were flashed up on the screen today. Um, and as Brendan described, it's a quite a simple process: long strips of tape just placed on top of the fabric, taken off, um, so. Everything that's on the shorts comes off with it, fibres and vegetation, all that type of little little stuff that they're looking for. And then the tape was then placed on an, a clear acetate sheet. So it all could be collated, all the tape lifts could be collated onto one sheet. And we saw um, a, a picture of that. Um, and it, it didn't look like, uh, well, it, it looked like, as you would imagine, it looked like it would look like tiny little fragments of of whatever it might be were um, on two of those acetate sheets one from the front of the shorts and one from the back and what did he find um of note well what he was looking for that at, at that time he had been tasked to see if there were any carpet type fibers from a car mm. on the um shorts and he described their their uh, that's a synthetic carpet always because very rarely do you get wall carpets in cars they're of a certain shape um, a certain um, uh, triangular shape that he was looking for and so he was, when he when he saw something on the tape or on the sheet that looked like it might be a, a carpet fiber you would then put it under the microscope to look for that particular type of fiber which is what the police were wanting him to do um, at that time he didn't actually find anything that he was looking for because there were no um, carpet fibres that he could see. But what we do know, or according to the prosecution, what we do know now is more than two decades later, those acetate sheets were revisited after Mr Edwards had been uh, arrested. They did identify a blue fibre that was taken from the shorts at that time. And what the prosecution say is that blue fibre was from the shorts of Mr Edwards and it matches blue fibres that were found on Kira and on Jane. So we he didn't know what he actually had at the time because he didn't see it because he didn't look didn't wasn't looking for it. But experts in the coming weeks will tell us how when they return to that um those tape lifts that's that's what they found and the significance of that is obvious because it could provide a physical forensic link between the Karakata rape victim Jane and Kira. So he obviously at that point in time really didn't understand or, or know what was there but he did find this little bit of um a paint fragment was there anything of interest in that? Well, that's that was the other thing that he was tasked to look for was a, as I say, a carpet fiber from a car or paint from a car. And so, in particular, he was looking for paint fragments, and he said he did find a tiny one, and it wasn't actually on the tape lift; it was in the bag when that the the shorts mm. had been kept in. 
Mm. It was blue. It was blue and white. Um, and he, he did say it looked very much like paint, but he didn't go any further than that. So whether it will have relevance going forward, we're not sure. Um, but it, it was certainly relevant to him at that time because that was one of the things that the police had asked him to look for. And then um, he moved forward in time to, I think, was 1999. And this is when he travelled with macro detectives uh, to the United States where they went to the FBI. Did he talk about uh, why they had chosen to take some exhibits uh, to the FBI and what those exhibits were? Yeah, They had the technology, didn't they? Mm. Yes. They they had the technology, which we didn't. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's very much a a similar thinking process we, we understand to going to FSS in 2008 and doing the mm. DNA over there. I mean, they were world leaders in this type of um, fibre forensic and hair analysis at that time. We know that they, they took these exhibits to Quantico, um, which was the, is the where in Washington where the FBI um, forensic analysis um, headquarters was based. Um, and Mr. Lynch was, was one of the two people that went over there the other is sergeant vic webb who we will hear it from tomorrow they both went over to a take the physically transport the exhibits and also to stay as observers to watch what was done um to them uh, as a continuity exercise we would think and also probably as a professional development exercise to see some in the bet some of the best people in the world doing that stuff um in you know in the on their home ground as it were yeah, and we don't actually know what they they took over um, all of it. We don't know all of all of what they took over, but we do know some of what they brought back um, because that is what they are focusing on. Because when the uh, the physical exhibits went, they included Kira's T-shirt um, that she was wearing and and was was found on her when her body was found. They took that T-shirt. Their um, scrapings were done off the T-shirt, placed into some Petri dishes, um, and they were um, then um, collected, um, stored, and they were some of the stuff that eventually returned from America. And once again, we will hear later on that when they were later analysed, more of those blue fibres were found and from those scrapings that were um, left in those petri dishes. Yeah. Was Mr Lynch's fibre expertise uh, questioned under cross-examination? It was, Nat. Um, He was asked in cross-examination what qualifications he had in the uh, the sort of fibre analysis. And uh, he chuckled a bit and said, well, I didn't have any because uh, there wasn't really any um, qualifications to be had at that time. And we were talking 95, 96. Um, so, uh, you know, DNA was, was obviously in its infancy, um, as was, the, you know, a lot of the expertise around fibres. And, and as Brandon's mentioned to us a couple of times, it's still quite a niche area of forensic uh, science. Um, so, yeah, so he was he, he was uh, challenged a little bit on that, but um, in, in quite a light-hearted way, he batted the question off. Um, <laughs> the interesting but, one was the static electricity. They asked, um, she, uh, Genevieve Cleary asked him about the, um, was he aware that static electricity can cause the transfer of fibres? And he also said that um, he was aware of certain things back then, um, but he wasn't aware that there was a process that tested for fibres in the air at that time. And then um, he went on to talk about the garment-to-garment stuff. 
And so yeah. he was aware then uh, that, you know, you could cross-contaminate fibres from one person to another via, for instance, your lab coat. Well, well, the defence team are sort of concentrating on who was there with them. You know, were they working side by side? Uh, this is, I guess, following similar to the DNA, you know, um, because, of course, that's the defensive thing, that there was contamination. So they're exploring who was close by, um, and that's what he was asked about, who was next to him. Because I think it was a bit of a joint thing, wasn't it, between Pathwest and the Chem Centre with, with some of the exhibits yeah, well, certainly with the analysis of, of James here that we discussed yesterday, that really was um, a collab, um, as in collaboration, and two mm. labs coming together as well. And there were uh, six or seven people in the room when that um, uh, process was being done. And Ali's exactly right there. Again, in in the cross-examination questioning, we, we get a glimpse of where the defence might be going and... and uh, Genevieve Cleary's questions this morning about uh, how, what was your state of knowledge about primary transfer, secondary transfer of fibres, and then she rattled off a few of the possible ways that that could um, uh, happen, uh, garment to garment, person to garment, I mean, you know, a person to a garment to a person to a garment, mm-hmm. and also the static electricity, which we hadn't um, heard, heard of um, before. And then Ms Cleary also mentioned or asked whether the lab had any testing at that time available to see if there were any loose fibres in the air um, when or if an an examination um, occurred, which was interesting as well. Um, Because, I mean, logic would suggest that 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 could happen, but logic would also suggest that maybe the testing of the air at that time was was not even thought of, or if it was, it would have been um, quite primitive. Mm. Yeah, the the chances of cross contamination in this field sound like it, you know, is somewhat greater than than the DNA, as Brendan was telling us yesterday. Mm. Um, fibers do fly through the air as opposed yeah. to the DNA. So after these exhibits have gone to the FBI, then they've come back and they've gone to the Australian Federal Police in Canberra, and what happened to them then? So this, um, the, uh, once again, there was. Uh, a raft of um, cross-country, intercontinental sharing of exhibits. And, uh, you know, as we've said, it might have appeared that the the macro investigation was going nowhere, but in fact, um, the officers were going everywhere they could possibly think of to try and get this breakthrough. And Canberra was one of those spots. This is where the Australian Federal Police are based. um, And one of the... uh, real fibre experts in in this country, Dr. James Robertson. He has literally written the book on fibre analysis and its use in criminal proceedings. um, proceedings. He he was based there, um, and that's so uh, the WA police turned to him for some help. Um, And again, we've previously heard a little bit, um, uh, many, many of the hair samples, including... um, Kira's entire hair mass um, was sent to Canberra um, for some analysis over there. These um, petri dishes that I previously mentioned, they were sent over there. Um, And then so uh, Senior Sergeant Kenneth Sanderson, who was a very senior forensic officer, um, probably one of the most senior forensic officers um, in his day, was tasked with... um, 
bringing all those uh, exhibits back in 2005, uh, finding out what was in those boxes and logging them. Um, and so that's that's where his evidence was primarily um, addressed this afternoon in in what was in those boxes, what, what, what did you do with them when you got them back um, and what, where did you send some of them after they returned and for what purpose? Um, it might be an idea at this point perhaps uh, to maybe talk about the um, exhibits and the renumbering of them because, you mm. know, I feel like there's a whole alphabet of information here. Mm. But if we could talk about some of those key ones that we will be talking about, I guess, for the next lot of witnesses, if you can talk us through those, Tim, that would be great. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, have you, has everyone got a pencil and a pen? <laughs> because I'm only going to say this once. Okay, so... Um, I've just mentioned Kira's hair mass. So that's the, the, the entire mass of Kira's hair that was taken from her during her post-mortem. That was given the initial uh, label of AJM54. Um, we will hear a lot about that. But because these um, hair masses and hair samples went here, there and everywhere and everyone had a slightly different numbering and labelling system, um, then it's where it becomes complicated so when the hair mass went to Canberra in uh, around about 2001, they took a subsample um, of that hair and they also renamed the whole hair. So the whole hair became VW1 and the sample, the subsample of they took became VW1A. There was um, another hair sample um, that was sent to the FBI. That was, that was called K1. That was this is all Kira's hair still, and then we've heard about RH17, which is the pristine piece of hair that was taken from Kira's um, dump site um, in 1997. And there's also the billy bucket that the hair was stored in, and that will have its own label. But we will just try and refer to that as the bucket to keep it simple. So all those mass of um, exhibits, they will all have separate fibres on them, according to the prosecution, both blue, which are the ones that are supposed to come from Mr. Edwards' shorts or workwear, and grey, which are supposed to come from his car. Then we've got Kira's shirt, T-shirt, as we've mentioned. That was given the label AJM33 by the WA police. And then when it went to the FBI, um, it, the, the scrapings that were taken off that um, and put into the Petri dishes, the, the, the key ones were labelled Q7 and Q7.1. And we will hear that they also had these blue fibres on them. And then we go to Jane. Um, Jane's hair mass, um, we've talked about. There was uh, 22 critical fibres um, in all on that. And then we've got um, the shorts of the Karakata rape victim, which were given the label AJM2. We've talked about those earlier today. And they were actually, um, in 1996, there was one blue fibre allegedly found on there. And then in 2012, they were returned to by forensic police and another exactly the same uh, identical fibre was found on there. So when we're going through all this, it, 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 might, it might sound a little <laughs> bit like an alphabet spaghetti soup. We will try and keep it as simple as we can. But, uh, um, yeah, 
and we'll also try and put up a, some sort of um, keynote on the on the west.com.au um, if people are, are struggling to follow it. But um, we know our listeners are, in some cases, more expert on this case <laughs> than I am. So, uh, so yeah, and we'll keep an eye on the questions as well. And uh, if anyone's mixed up, we'll try and uh, we'll, we'll we'll try and make it clear for them. Yeah, I, I guess it's just a matter of now shifting your focus. If you had your head around the AJM40 and 42 and the fingernails, uh, they're the DNA, uh, I guess, numbers that you were working with and now you're just shifting your attention to these other numbers which are focused on the fibres. So you'll hear the VW1s and K1s and, and that you'll become familiar with those, I guess. Is that right, Tim? <laughs> Yeah, well, I hope so. We'll try. <laughs> and Tim, then we'll you get to we'll the queues, don't you? The queues. <laughs> and the queues. <laughs> and um, this is obviously isn't done for to try and make it complicated. Oh, no. this, was the, this was the police's way of trying to keep track of everything. Um, and and uh, uh, honestly, we could give you exhibit numbers and and docket numbers and all sorts as well. But we we are trying to keep it as simple as possible. But the important thing is that the police knew at all the time at all times where the exhibits were because that's what they're going to be quizzed on most I think um, over the coming weeks with regards to continuity and who might have had access to them and who might have um, possibly dropped some fibres. Yeah all right well can you tell us what's in store for the rest of the week or tomorrow at least? Yeah, so as I mentioned, uh, Vic Webb who was again a very senior forensic um, uh, sergeant in the WA Police was very highly involved in the, in, in all this um, fibre examination. He will start and probably take up most, if not all, of um, tomorrow. Um, so hopefully we'll hear, the last couple of days have been establishing about, you know, what people were doing. So hopefully we might hear about actually what some of what they found um, and, and its importance um, to the case. Great. Well, thank you both for your time today. And from all of us, we just wanted to have a quick shout out to all of you who have contacted us inquiring about our welfare. Yes, we are keeping our social distancing. Uh, in the studio now, it's mostly myself and our producer, Kate Ryan, and uh, mostly people are calling in. So Tim is calling in, Alison is calling in, hence why at times now you might hear more dings and bings and noises <laughs> in the back. My... <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> we are, at times, uh, people are coming from from their lounge rooms. So um, we are also doing our bit to try and keep you across this trial as best we can in these circumstances. We wish that you are all safe and well wherever you are and we hope to have your company tomorrow for day 62 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. For a fresh take on the news that matters, tune in to WA's newest morning show, The West Live, with Jenna Clark at thewest.com.au. The West Live not only delivers on what the day's big news stories mean for WA with hard-hitting interviews and analysis, but it will also make you smile with light-hearted chats and local gossip. The West Live, like talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.